You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, uh, we're going to get right back into uh, the second half of our interview with uh, Alicia Wilcox, but I did want to throw out a quick main fact. The only U.S. state that shares its border with only one other state. That's right. I've, I, I've heard that before, and that is pretty fascinating, of course. Yeah. Yes. The neck. Right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so uh, let's just jump right back into things. Um, so uh, I have a question about the jurors. Did you talk to any jurors that were on the just total discounting of, of a particular uh, piece of evidence and uh, just totally discounting the, the evidence of a, a forensic scientist in a case? No, no. Um, okay. they, they felt that the forensic scientists were very credible or cred or credible and then there was somewhat credible so they had to like art scale very credible credible somewhat credible one juror commented on one latent print examiner it was the only one who got the somewhat credible everybody else got credible or very credible he explained to me that fingerprints are not matched on a computer and that it's done by the human eye and mistakes can be made and he relayed a case that he'd seen i think on 2020 he said he had the had the story a little bit muddled up, but it was it was a Madrid train bombing, the false right. ID. So I listened to him. I said, "Okay, okay." And he was a little bit horrified that it was the human eye making the decision, but everybody else found the latent prints uh, or the DNA either credible or very credible. And the same thing: there was a, a moderate positive correlation between how they viewed the jurors' credibility and the reliability of the evidence. So when we say we speak for the evidence, we certainly do. And the jurors didn't have a complete distinction between the two that one led to the other. So the credibility of the expert was connected to the reliability of the evidence. And then that also connected to how important was that evidence item in your decision making. And I said earlier, these were all convictions. Yeah. Yeah. And again, in in my experience when talking to these folks, again, not in this kind of formal study that you had, but that was another underlying theme I I would hear was, I don't know that I understand all of this forensic science stuff you're talking about. I just need to know that you know what you're talking about and you need me (laughs) to believe you, make me believe you, make me trust you. If you can make me trust you, I'm just going to listen to what you say and basically do you know go along with what you say and i that when i had heard that from a couple of different people that we had talked to that were mock jurors in these little studies it it put a lot more pressure on me because i i guess i just kept thinking well all i got to do is just be accurate about my information but it's not just being accurate it's about being accurate believable and understandable so that they can relate to you ultimately that they want to trust and and believe in you You've brought up some really good points there uh, that the, my research did did address as well. And I think you're right. So you're talking about central processing and peripheral processing. So just for the people who 
listeners might, might not know what those two terms mean because I didn't know a few years host. ago. <laughs> or the, the hosts. hosts may um, not know. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, we'll start with central processing. This is what we hope the jurors are doing. So when we go to testify, we try to speak at their level, at their language. We don't know their educational background. So we're doing our best to keep things as simple as possible without talking down to them because we don't want to lose their interest there. And if we're doing a good job of that, the jurors will will actively participate and they'll become, they'll cognitively try to understand the evidence. They'll follow along. They'll listen to what we're saying. They'll be listening to possibly the statistics or the, the narrative testimony and they will come to a decision on the weight of the evidence based on what we said and what we presented. That's where we kind of want them to be, to be actively mentally engaged. The other side is peripheral processing, like you just described, uh, being charismatic, having a nice voice. Uh, th- this is one of the other reasons I went in to do this research was because when we go to conferences, we hear, you know, about dressing a certain way for women, tying your hair back, no dangling earrings, uh, don't wear a red shirt, it could incite anger so that we hear all of these uh, so our te- our testimony <laughs> training that I've been to and I've been to quite a few and I I kind of seek them out if they're at a conference I think I've been to there was a recent one level one two and three and I said oh I'm going to advanced crime scene testifying I'm going to go to that and uh, they a lot of the te- teaching is on the peripheral part you, you know presenting yourself properly interesting uh, so the right. peripheral processing is just that so jurors will always start off trying to cognitively understand what we're saying. They, they, the ones in this research were really engaged. They took their jobs very seriously. They, you know, the weight of the world was on their shoulders in, in these trials. But they did at times either get mentally tired. So if we start to use difficult to understand mathematical formula or, or probabilistic terms or numbers that they don't understand, they'll flip from the central processing to peripheral processing and base it on, oh, he, some of the examples they gave, oh, he testified a part of the government. He was a government employee. He had 15 years experience. Even some other research, not my own, they did research on people saying the same thing. One person wore glasses and the other one didn't. And the jurors put more weight on the person with glasses, with the peripheral things. You might have read some of those. Uh, and they'll do it if they don't understand something or they become mentally tired. It's a long day. They'll just kind of zone out and they'll still put weight on on the testimony. But what I found, and I, I'm not sure if I've seen this anywhere else, but I found from my research that they put far more weight on evidence when they actually could understand it. They, that makes sense. Yeah, they... And I can kind of hit to the kind of the crux of the whole, the the golden nugget that came from the research was they actually put more weight on the people who testified using narrative language than the ones that used probabilistic weight of the evidence. So to keep that in as kind of a simpler version, the they put more weight on latent print examiners and medical examiners and fire debris examiners than they did on the DNA. And the reason for that, I think, given going to watch, this is one of the benefits of going to watch, the people who use narrative language often used a demonstrative aid. So for these, yep, they were that's it. parts. Oh. Yep. Some of the med- 
some of the medical examiners uh, had just a rudimentary sketch of the human body on an easel uh, and a wooden dowel to point. Jurors liked that. They could see it for uh, themselves. So see it from themselves. And they said that uh, when they could really understand it themselves, they put more weight on it. Let me see if I can pull up some of the things that they said here about that. And, and, and why that is one of the things I was going to ask you is from your research, I, I know from my own experiences, although I've heard the occasional horror story, but they're pretty rare, would you advise then experts that when that evidence matters or is crucial to bring a chart and maybe not just even a chart in large mode, if they can Photoshop a presentation, a visual presentation of that fingerprint evidence, as opposed to simply going off of, you know, their rote narrative answers? Oh, I think, Glenn, I think you're completely right. I, I'm never going to court ever again without some sort of a demonstrative aid. The only time I might say not to do that is if you can't demonstrate it, where you might have a really uh, difficult lands and grooves on a bullet. It's really hard for a non-expert to see or a fingerprint that's really difficult to see. I've even taken those charts to court that you can maybe bring them along. Some of what I'm showing you here, it's difficult to see. It's a double tap or whatever it might be, but you could still, but you could still, show them a bit of the beginning process uh, and let them know right. that maybe this is a complex one. It might be difficult for everybody to see, but you can see some of these minutiae areas. Uh, let me read to you some of the central processing that some people said. Justin, it must be the doctor who came in and explained the knife wounds. He showed the shards in detail more than just his words. He showed the pictures and he explained it. So I didn't have any problem with accepting what he was saying. Another person, Amy, it allowed the jurors to hear the same thing over and over again. It was like mastering it. Again, it was helpful. And then it was and then it was also able to be taken off the table, meaning we felt everything they did was solid and they explained it well and we understood why they were doing it. So you see there that the that actually personally understanding it was very important. The uh, the evidence that came in um, that they're talking about here, were these all aspects where there was like an association or uh did you see any difference like when it was negative saying oh we didn't find anything or it didn't match uh did did they make these same kind of comments or were the was that evidence just not even brought into court since it didn't help prove the prosecution's case i'm sure some of it wasn't brought into court Um, and you're hitting on a good point eric that when i looked at all the different disciplines of uh, fire uh, or footwear and tire they put less weight on the footwear and tire evidence in, in the cases that I looked at. And I think the reason for that was they were class associations, associations okay. based on pattern, pattern only. And they said that those types of evidence were less reliable. It's hard to know if you were to show them a, a footwear impression that maybe was individualized to to a known shoe, whether they, I could only imagine that would have the same weight that they put on their fingerprint. But the class associations, I can't think that kind of touches on the question you asked. They did find those less valuable, which so would you and I. They didn't, they, they were only class associations and they felt that they were less reliable and they put less weight on it in their decision making. Right. Do you want me to read some peripheral processing comments? Yes, please. So in relation to a DNA testimony, 
Charlotte stated, with not being a scientist in the natural sciences, I just kind of defer to the judgment of the expert witness. I don't know anything about what they were talking about. So I just assume <laughs> what they're saying is right. That's, that's exactly, <laughs> exactly it. It's it, almost word for word, Alicia, exactly what I've heard. Here's another, here's another one. There's a whole level of inherent trust that you tend to apply to someone who comes forward that is brought to the case from the government. I found myself doing that. I had to jump to conclusions on what she, DNA expert, said that there was clear DNA on three pairs of pants. So they here we see a DNA expert that the person didn't understand uh, and they just put weight on them. Some people thought that the forensic scientists had credentials and were certified, even though many of them didn't describe that in court in their qualifying questions. Uh, as we know, there's no licenses um, and certain people are certified um, and certain people are not. Interesting. Really interesting. Um, so uh, any any part in this findings of, of um, you know, who's more likely to just you know, need it explained versus uh, just trusting the expert levels of education, men, women, like anything like that? Yeah. So I've asked a few funny questions that I kind of just threw in um, when I we were kind of coming up with, you know, you've this one opportunity to ask questions. It's hard to get access to these this type of group. But one of the questions I asked was, which would you have more uh, confidence in? traditional methods or new technologies and I gave an example to them uh, would you find measurements for example at a crime scene with a ruler or with a maybe a more modern technology like a laser which would you have more confidence in great that is a great question what I do you think this. the answer would be well I would hope that it's a laser because people should know that but uh, my gut tells me they're gonna fall back to the more traditional because they can relate to it and I would say it would kind of depend on the um, like the age maybe the age or education level of the person asked it did Eric in what way do you think the that that had an influence on their answer uh, the younger and more educated went with the laser more often. It was the other way around. Really? <laughs> now, my, I didn't describe at the beginning. Damn millennials. I know. The more educated people that had, you know, finished their bachelor's degree, master's degrees, a lot of the, the jurors had master's degrees. They were, they were more aware of error rates and things that could go wrong. They'd experienced it in their own jobs. So... The way huh. they judged the expert testimony, and, and I guess this question as well, was through their own lens, as, as we all do with life. They, People with more experience were more confident with the ruler, with, with more education, were more confident than the ruler because of the inherent errors that could happen with the laser. Interesting. Although errors can happen with the ruler too, but <laughs> that was... I was surprised at that at that one. Interesting. And I did I did ask another question I thought was fascinating. Did the deliberation process help you understand the scientific evidence in the trial? And about half of the jurors stated that they were able to help others. They're like, oh yes, I you know some people needed assistance in this area, and I was able to help. And then the other half said I was confused. Some of the areas of confusion that they spoke to me about were the DNA testimony. They didn't fully understand it. Some of the jurors were confused about trigger pulls and trigger pressure and lands and grooves and 
fire and pin, all those terms that were thrown out kind of quickly, if they were unfamiliar with guns, got mm. them jammed up and they couldn't couldn't really move beyond the testimony of the firings, firearms examiner because they were hung up and going, what does calibre mean? I don't know what that means. So then they couldn't hear the rest. And they said the deliberation process, one of the female jurors said that there were a lot of hunters in the group and the hunting people who were familiar with <laughs> firearms were able to help her. And she felt then that she, the firearms testimony, she could incorporate that in with when they were making their decisions. So that's something that I've heard from attorneys before too. And it sounds like your research is mirroring that is that, uh, I, I was always under the impression that when you're speaking to jurors, you know, you've got 12 of them, you know, in the box and you're trying to get all 12 of them in your testimony. But what I've heard from uh, attorneys, really good ones, is that you don't have to get all of them. You have to just get a couple of them. In fact, they talk about two or three being the magic number. If you can get three of them to believe you, then three can turn an entire jury because during deliberations, they can explain to the others. They can make, you know, because you're going to have a a certain number that are sheep and go along with what the group does. You're going to have a few that are, you know, more aggressive and a few that are just more meek. But I was surprised at learning that. But again, it's simple and it makes sense if you can just get a handful of them to understand it, they'll explain it to the others. And it sounds like you've heard similar things then from your survey. I think so. I think so. The, the, the issue would be if it's the same for explaining everything you might, I think there was a division of, of, of knowledge that it wasn't the same few jurors explaining everything oh, okay. that they they each brought, they each had a value in the deliberation process. As you know, I didn't ask many questions about that, but they were open-ended and the jurors did um, kind of indicate that somebody assisted with a portion of it, but they had their own idea as well. Right. Yeah. Right. That, make, that makes complete sense. Uh, yeah. So Alicia, um, uh, talk a little bit about, um, you know, how the jurors, you know, got to know or, or got to see that the experts were qualified uh, to give that testimony and, and what they thought of that whole process. So in many states, Maine has the requirement that before somebody testify to the evidence in a case that they go through a series of questions that we call qualifying questions. And they often you prepare those in advance and give an idea of what you're going to talk about. So you're going to talk about your education and your training and your experience and your degree, your certification, and if you've published papers or you sit on any special groups and things like that. Uh, So I asked the jurors to rank in order of importance, and I picked six areas that are common in Maine for people to highlight when they're testifying. So I asked them to rank from one to six, one being most important, the expert witnesses' years of experience in the job, their university education, their external training, such as conferences and workshops, whether working in an accredited lab is important, and then their certifications. So overwhelmingly, the jury, uh, the jurors felt that the person's years of experience was very, very important. Okay. That was ranked number one most of the time. Uh, this next most important ranked one and two most of the time was university education. I don't think either of those surprise us too much. When I went back and looked at those, there was uh, a trend that the jurors who 
so a lot of the jurors, I had nobody respond to my to my survey. That was that was a, a person who was unemployed. They're either retired or were actively working in some sort of a career. So the people who put years of experience as number one tended to have or had jobs that they learned the skills on the job. And the people who uh, okay. had professional degrees, maybe like nurses and there was an engineer. I'm trying to remember their different. I didn't ask them their occupation, but some of them told me. Those people who told me their occupations tended to place more, place maybe university education as their most important. So the people who did years of experience were the different people that ranked university education as number one. So then after that, so years of experience, university education, I'm going to say them in order. Next one was on the job training. The next one were certifications. Second to last were the external training, such as conferences and workshops. And somebody made a comment that people, some people go to conferences and they don't go to the lectures and they go to the bar. But they <laughs> had that experience. That would never happen in forensic science. <laughs> And the lowest down was accredited working in an accredited lab. So that's where we're. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, uh, really low, stark contrast. And so well, I presented this as a poster at the II conference in Atlanta last year. And I had some people say to me, oh, that's because they didn't know what accreditation means. It's very important. But they did. So I asked them, what does accreditation mean to you? And they said, following a set of standards, like what you see in the hospital. And some of them worked in places that were ISO accredited. Uh, so they were aware of what it meant, but to them, the examiner was more important than their working environment. The, what we've gained in our experience and our education certifications were more important than SOPs that we might follow. Wow, interesting. I mean, just thinking of all the time that we spend on accreditation uh, and... But in the jurors' minds, it's just, you know, sitting in the chair uh, and, uh, you know, what you got uh, in the frame hanging on the wall. Yeah. And if you think of it, it's just a little bit worrying. So some of this research comes back to us as forensic scientists and then us, uh, the attorneys, this information might be valuable to them, you know, during voir dire and things like that. But the gatekeeper came to mind quite a bit when I was typing this up. Uh, how dangerous is that if you think of peripheral and central processing and yeah. somebody working in a non-accredited lab maybe with a lot a lot of charisma in a science that may not be very vigorous or, or robust uh, or may not have strong foundational validity or whatever the term you want to use and then the gatekeeper sometimes the judge will say well we'll just let this wash out in the cross-examination process but highlight the weaknesses which they often don't so there's definitely the element of the judge needs to be doing his or her job. And it seems more and more just that the, the judges are, are going with the, um, well, if you just let everybody, you know, who wants to testify, testify, then you know, it can't come and bite me later on um, uh, for having a mistrial for not letting someone testify. Yeah, yeah, I see that too. Yeah, so wow. of, of the things that you talked about the, this evening, that's the only thing that is uh, not only surpri- well, really surprising to me, but also against what I had heard. In, in one study, we had asked uh, a group of potential mock jurors what 
I, we gave, it was a multiple choice question, something along the lines of what would be helpful in understanding you know, the limitations of this evidence or how often errors occur. And one of the things we and I think the answers were something like hearing about error rate studies, hearing about accreditation and quality controls that are in place uh, or uh, hearing about known errors like the Mayfield case, you know, just known errors that have occurred. And the one that surprised me was that the known errors was lowest. I mean, only something like less than 10% of the respondents said that. But it was nearly tied, but just slightly edging out was hearing about accreditation and quality controls and SOPs. And I, my takeaway from that was that that did matter to them is hearing about that. But now I'm beginning to think that maybe it's not hearing about it's not that I don't want to hear about that, that when when faced with all these other things like training and experience, et cetera, they just value that the least of those. So it's not that it's not important. It's not as important as those other things that you you identified. Yeah, and I had to, they had to rank them. And I think there might be a difference in asking jurors or, or, or people who could be a jury. Remember, I'm asking this question after they've seen a homicide trial. Right. So they've seen people qualify as an expert. So that may have colored what they said as well, whether it's a, a true representation of what people would think. But post-trial, post-homicide trial, this small sample, that's what they said. Yeah, and, and ours wasn't even, a, a you know, we just had examples and some other. So it wasn't even a, a one consistent mock case. It was just talking about these things theoretically without right. a real example in front of them. And you're suggesting that there are errors and there's issues, if you would like to know, you know, standard procedures, if there are errors. My question was different, not suggesting sure. that there are any errors, if there's even an idea that there could be an error. Yeah. Uh, is just which of these is most important in an examiner? Could you rank them for me? Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, that, I, it's going to really make me think about how, you know, what to do with that information. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think with that, with the sa- sample's small, so we have to take that into consideration too. There were True. 29 who did the paper survey and 22 phone interviews. So the 22 interviews from a qualitative sample is a decent size. Uh, the 29 qualitative, uh, this was a mixed method, so they went hand in hand, mm-hmm. but uh, that's why I did it both ways. The The analysis of the Phone interviews was very time-consuming and lengthy, but it really gives an idea to the the why of the matter. We have the, some of the figures, but why did they feel that way? Hmm. Now, um, uh, so uh, Alicia, you know, you've done all this work. Now, you said there's even some stuff you haven't even anal- finished analyzing yet. You've just collected so much data. Uh, what are yeah. uh, what are some of the next steps for you uh, in in this line of research? I'm going to try to publish because people are chomping at the bit. <laughs> I've done some presentations on it. So um, I'm doing some edits at the moment for the first one based on jurors' interpretation of our credibility. Once that gets further along the pipeline, probably in the next month or so, I'll go ahead and see if I can publish the part on how do they know if evidence is reliable. So I'll go back then and I have asked questions about the CSI effect. So I, I might be able to publish a little bit on that as well, CSI. Is the thesis published? Could we get a copy of it if someone wanted it? It's, it's. I think it's going to be unembargoed in October, but uh, Dundee recommends me to keep it sealed up till I get some of the publications out and then it'll become available, uh, the whole thing. I see. 
So I would like to, uh, I did all of this research by myself. So if anyone's out there listening and keen, I'd like to collaborate with somebody else and go forward. And there are definitely some weaknesses, a learning curve that happens when you're a new researcher. I'd love to replicate. Amen, sister. <laughs> replicate the <laughs> replicate the study, even make the sample larger to see if the if 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 it pans out. Uh, we could do it here at Maine. We could compare it to maybe another warmer jurisdiction. <laughs> so yeah, I'd love to. I I I'm going to probably this the by the end of this year, 2018, kind of come up with phase two of this. I have some ideas in my mind, uh, but I'd love to replicated and there's lots of it, it even ties into how how do we how do we testify and, and some of the research is coming out with i i'm a bit concerned with some of the random match probabilities or any of the likelihood races that we might incorporate into so some of some other people's research might it might dictate my my avenues i'm i feel like if we go ahead and have some statistical numerical value for fingerprints or footwear or bullets or cartridge cases I think it should still have narrative testimony, uh, mm-hmm. whether we still can say the word identification or I like the I like the way of saying it in my opinion. And I know the PCAST report doesn't says there's no uh, we can't always be lying our expertise and our training, as we've all said, my training and expertise dictates my conclusion. But. Our, opinion, our evidence in the end is based on opinion. Uh, we hope our opinion is based on strong and reliable data. But I do see, given the information the jurors have give, given feedback in this research, that they like to see, uh, they like to have narrative testimony. They like to understand themselves and a demonstrative aid should be the way to go. And I would encourage DNA examiners, if they're not doing demonstrative aids, you could certainly... I do it with my students and you show the different loci and explain the product rule, how each loci is independent of the one next to it. So when you have independent events, you can multiply them and you could take them along, multiply these two, you get 0.001 and multiply this one and you get, and then you get to this tiny, tiny number. I think that would go a long way and you could do that in a PowerPoint slide. You could possibly use the same one each time to testify to give them an idea of where did this tiny little number come from yeah yep, for sure no i agree with you 100 percent. that even if we move in that direction and i you know i'm a huge supporter of that i don't know that we we want to stray away from some of uh, the testimony that we currently have that is successful and they understand it it just it would be nice then to have this other component behind it that when those questions get asked or what's that based on or where did that come from, right. we can then refer to those data to support, but not necessarily replace the kinds of testimony, you know, maybe shape it a little bit, but not replace entirely. I agree. I agree. And we could maybe have that data in our report or in yep. our in our notes, but it's maybe not something we, like you said, unless it comes up under cross-examination or so it comes up as a question, we we may might not be something we present if we can show them a chart and talk talk them through it. Well, and, and to your point about your saying that, you know, that it's your opinion, I mean, despite what PCAST, you know, it says, that's, that is the 
at base level, the definition of an expert witness exactly. is a witness who can come in and and give an opinion in court instead of just uh, describing what they saw uh, as a, a witness um, uh, instead of a witness witness instead of an expert witness. Yeah, direct witness. There you go. There's. I knew there was a word for it, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I suggest we change it to witness witness uh, uh, for clarity. <laughs> I knew what you witness meant. squared. <laughs> hey, uh, so I'm, one question I have for you is, I mean, you're obviously familiar with, you know, the works of Bill Thompson and Jay Kohler. In fact, they're, you know, one of our most recent episodes discussed the most recent Jay Kohler paper. Wondering about your thoughts on that research and how it ties into yours and, and what, you know, what you think the merit of that is and, you know, how it all kind of ties together. Yeah, I listened to the podcast on the Jay Kohler article. I went back to see if I had read it previously, and I had, which is good. Uh, but I don't, <laughs> I don't remember what I've read and what I haven't read. But I did tend to agree with some of the things that you said, that, the, that when they're picking surveys, they may, I think what you were saying last week, Glenn, was that they pick the middle number sometimes. Uh, central stage theorem. Tend yeah. To- yes. it, it's just, in the framing of the question. Yeah, I didn't have that. My jurors were way over at the 95% sure that there was it was strong evidence. Uh, they didn't pick in the middle. So I don't know why that was. Again, it prob- may be a bit different when it's post-trial. Um, but, but did you give them 90, 91, 95, 97, or did you just open-ended ask them what their percentage was? I, like highly reliable, reliable. I didn't give them a number. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But I think highly reliable is not fifty percent or middle of the road. Yeah, they picked they picked on the upper end of my Likert scale. If that makes sense. I think the 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 the, um, the effect that that we were describing in that episode was more um, when examiners are are presented with these numbers that don't really make sense to them. You know, one in ten thousand, one in a million, one in a billion, one in a trillion, etc. When they don't really know how to distinguish past maybe one in a hundred from one in a trillion. And so they just kind of pick something in the middle that sounds good. But I if- think you're right. And I think that goes back to that uh, peripheral processing when it, when they can't have a conceptualize it. Right. They, I, I, I do, do see parallels with, with, with that idea. If they, if it's something that's hard to imagine, uh, like I can imagine a million with the zeros, but if somebody says a trillion, I'm not quite sure how many zeros. <laughs> the power of what is that? Uh, so when they know that's an important piece of evidence, but it gets less value if they can't imagine it in their own minds. Right, right. So one, one last question for you, Alicia. Either in your research or in the research you've read, what do you think about the error rate issue? Uh, you know, wh- what did jurors tell you about error rates? Did you explore that at all? Or what do you think you're seeing in the literature that discusses error rates in jurors? I didn't ask that question at all. And I started the research back in 2012, 2013. Uh, so I didn't ask them that any of those questions at all. I'm not sure if I can really answer the question with regards to my my research. Okay. Uh, they overwhelmingly didn't feel that there was issues or errors. They had a lot of confidence 
that maybe that is another future avenue to go down to post trial and suggest the idea that there that there is an error rate and see if they consider that during during their testimony or during the deliberations. Yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see post trial where error rates were suggested during trial. You know, by let's say during cross examination versus trials where it wasn't brought up. So you'd have some sort of comparative between the two uh, to see if there's any effect. I mean, I'd love to see that outcome. Well, I did watch the cross and these with these expert witnesses, and there was no question of error rate in any of them. Oh, okay. Uh, so this these would be trials in twenty. 15 and 2016 and there were no questions on error rates whether they're being asked now since the PCAST report but after each of these big reports uh, we, you probably both agree that there's um, an educational deficit with with attorneys both for the prosecution and particularly the defense yeah for sure they uh, I was asked to go down to Massachusetts to a group of uh, public defenders to explain the PCAST report. And I thought to myself, I thought the PCAST report was written by lawyers for lawyers. So I went through <laughs> page by page and kind of dissected it out to be manageable. And I presented and they were taking notes and asking questions. They struggled to understand the jargon that was in there. If you can't understand the PCAST report, how do you go about right. then? And we've all had that, the cross-examination question. You think, yay, here, I'm going to get a tricky question. I, I have to say, I've never, I'm, I'm jinxing myself, I've never had a question that really challenged me <laughs> on the stand. Like, I'm ready for them. I always try to remember the, the reaction of an anhydrine in case they give me the marker and I have to draw it up on the whiteboard. That's my ultimate fear. <laughs> I have to draw out the chemical reaction of um, from colorless to purple. But... Um, they, they approach a question. Have you read the NAS report? Yes, I have. Well, wasn't there criticisms? Yes, there were. And then the question fizzles away. So that's that's an area, too, that the, the attorneys themselves know that there's error rates. But my experience in the, the few trials that I've gone to see and testified in, that they don't have the tools to get down at the at that level to, to be successful. Right. I'm, maybe you're experiencing attorneys that are, I know there are special attorneys out there now that are real up on the PCAST report. I was talking to one on the phone last week uh, and she knew all about it and is using some of those techniques to, to, you know, have Daubert hearings and things like that. But I, I, this, that didn't take place during this research. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, you know what? I got, got one more for you. What about, and maybe you didn't observe this, were there ever instances of opposing experts and what effect did opposing experts have on jurors and their uh, testimony? Or uh, deliberation, sorry. That's really good. I, I, There were some opposing experts, but I didn't make them part of this study because I didn't know when they were testifying. Uh, I didn't have that information available to me. So part of this was to be able to get to the trial at the correct time and the correct day with the with the fire debris examiner, for example. But however, when I was asking those questions about the expert witnesses, some of them did respond. And I had some, one one comment was that the opposing expert was uh, paid. He was getting paid mm -hmm. to come. So I've read that in some previous literature that the hired gun kind of idea, yep. right. whereas the state employees were just doing their job. Uh, and that 
that expert wasn't as familiar. He had, I think, examined fingerprints in a domestic violence case, fingerprints and blood on different surfaces. And he had looked at them, uh, but he wasn't sure where they came from, whereas the state's expert knew they developed the fingerprint on the knife and were able to testify came from the handle of the knife or the bladed knife. He just knew that there were fingerprints on a wall and didn't know where. And they found that they said he was ill-prepared and... So that's just one example. I didn't ask some questions about opposing right, experts, right. but uh, they felt that the person came to trial with only some knowledge. And uh, we've been called in as consultants in cases where we're only given a certain amount of information. Yeah. Again, back to the story model, if we can't place that fingerprint in a particular location, we just say fingerprint F or fingerprint 9, and we're not, no, I don't know where that came from, that, that um, hurt that person's credibility. Yeah, I mean, in in terms of future research, if there's, again, just I'd love to see a component of that, of the the impact of opposing experts. Is it really worth the attorney's time and money to get an opposing expert? Um, And then what makes a good opposing expert? I'd be fascinated to see that, especially, you know, as a consultant that sometimes has to come in as the opposing expert. I'm I'm wondering, is it even worth the, the time to bring me in? I think it is if you're uh, if you're charismatic, you don't wear a red shirt. My you, earrings. Don't wear my don't wear my hoop earrings. <laughs> Keep my hair in a bun. <laughs> I think if you uh, go through your qualifying questions and you have lots of experience and you've sat on national committees, uh, I think you're going to sway them. Uh, so I, I think if a, if it if a defense attorney is wondering if they should bring somebody in, that's part of it. Uh, we'd hope that the defense expert is reputable and we're relying on solid data and things like that. But there's certainly sure. a component that I said earlier that the credibility was moderately correlated to the reliability of the evidence, the reliability of the testimony. Fascinating. Uh, thank you. It's been really enlightening. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. It was great having you on, um, uh, listening to this the, the pleasant Irish accent the whole uh, the whole time, and uh, I hope all of our our listeners around the world uh, enjoy it as well. Um, uh, yeah. Hey, hey, Eric. One of one of my favorite things in having an Irish person on, uh, if we could ask you, Alicia, um, could you just tell us about the levels of detail? What levels there are? Oh. <laughs> I am not falling for that one. It's always my favorite to hear about that turd level detail. <laughs> so, so when I was in France as a child, I was about age seven or eight. We were on vacation camping on a campsite. And I met up with some English people from the UK, little kids my own age. And they said the same thing like that. They said, count. So I said, one, two, three, four, five. And they'd all laugh. And I was like, well, let's count. And then so I came back and told my parents. And um, there were, that was around the time there were a lot of troubles in Ireland. Um, and my parents didn't like the idea that English children teasing. Uh, so the Irish number three, Oscale in Gaelic, is is pronounced tree. So when we're learning to count, we um, okay. Irish is mandatory in school. So... When we start school at age four, we're learning how to count in English and in Irish at the one time. So I guess 
three with the th and three like the irish way uh would get muddled up and little irish children say one two three four five six seven so yeah first level second level and third level how does that sound <laughs> And I've been that sounds boring. Uh, I've been over here a long time, uh, so I've moder- moderated my, if that's the term, my language to help the Americans understand me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm American now too. I'm a citizen, so I'm now an American right. myself. All right. Well, uh, thank you again, Alicia, so much for coming on uh, on the show. Um, for uh, all your listeners out there, if you uh, have any. Um, uh, questions, uh, Alicia, is there, can you give any contact information for people that want to uh, reach out to you? Yeah, I'll give you my work email. It's Wilcox, W-I-L-C-O-X, A for Apple, at H-U-S-S-O-N dot E-D-U. All right. Um, and as always, you can contact myself or Glenn as well, Eric at RayForensics.com and Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. Um, uh, please uh, check us out um, and give us those five-star ratings on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Um, and uh, you know, we're getting more and more popular, as I was talking about uh, earlier uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. And uh, definitely want to keep uh, spreading the Double Loop podcast around. Um, the opinions expressed uh, all are belong to us and not to anybody that we work for. Um, and uh, please, uh, you know, check us out on Patreon.com and consider, uh, you know, you know, sending a, a dollar or two our way uh, to help uh, keep the Double Loop podcast going. Uh, so with that, again, thank you to Alicia, uh, thank you. and I'll talk to you guys all later. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.